We look to good weather to raise our spirits. But what if our spirits don't need raising? What if what they need is precisely the dark and gloom of a rainy day? What if God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous? Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, down and go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of the guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passiontide, published by Path Books in 2002. David has been meeting resistance from his willful congregation he's trying to lead, and also from the wild places he's trying to conquer. He's looking for a breakthrough for both. But are they the problem? This is Chapter 4, Part 3. As the weeks passed, the constant cloud turned to constant rain. Sometimes it fell in a steady drizzle, sometimes in driving sheets. David found himself increasingly housebound. If he had even one comfortable chair in which to lounge with a good book, he might not have felt quite so claustrophobic. But as to furnished rooms, there was the kitchen, with its chrome-legged table and chairs— The study had only the desk with its hard wooden desk chair, the bare bookshelves only deepening his sense of abandonment. And there was the bedroom, where he could sit on the bed with his back propped up against the wall, the weight of his body slowly pushing the bed out into the room, requiring him every so often to get up and shove it back into place. David spent more and more time up in the attic, seated cross-legged before the large window with its disparaging view of the naked mountains. Above him beat the unbroken patter of rain on the roof. A single light bulb dangled from the rafters, casting a dull glow on a small stack of books and letters. If the phone rang down in the kitchen, he would not have been able to reach it in time. But the phone rarely rang. Living alone, David came to count on his morning trip to the post office, partly because of Denise and her daily news concerning the goings-on about town, but mostly because of the mail itself and its promise of contact with someone who might be thinking about him. His own letters took forever to get out from this corner of the world, so they often crossed those that were on their way to him, especially those from his family, making for disjointed conversation at best. But every Sunday afternoon, he would call home. Paul and Catherine were always glad to hear from him, 
but each passing week took him farther from their daily lives and them farther from his. Beverly, on the phone, was distant, tentative, cautious, which was so unlike her. The distance he had put between them and the sudden and impulsive way in which he had left had made him a stranger to her now. Their conversations were strained as a result, almost making matters worse. So David counted on the mail. The small stack Denise handed him meant for a daily dose of disappointment, of course, as he tossed aside the unsolicited flyers and sorted through the church-related bills. But from time to time, a handwritten envelope would fall from the pile. It would bear a familiar name or address in the upper corner, and his own name and address written prominently in the center, a testimony to his not having been forgotten altogether. One day, such an envelope arrived, identifying the sender as J. Blanchard. Without recognizing the name, David tore it open as soon as he got in the door. He unfolded the enclosed letter and began reading it as he walked down the hall into the kitchen. He was halfway through the first paragraph when Jill's voice suddenly emerged through the handwriting. He sat down at the kitchen table. Taking a deep breath, he started again. My dear David, how can I begin to express my sorrow and regret for what has come between us all? If only you could know how much Beverly and the kids miss you, and how much grief I bear myself for what has now been lost by all of us. What happened between Bev and me was a horrible mistake, though it felt so innocent at the time. I won't take the full blame for this. Complete honesty is more important than ever if we are to work this through. But still, you must know how deeply I regret that my confused feelings and my thoughtless actions have driven a wedge between the two people I love most in all the world. That our friendship is over, I have no doubt. But that you and Bev should be split up by this would be unthinkable to me and would be the worst possible consequence of my mistake. I ask you to find it in your heart to forgive me. Despite all my doubts, I believe that God is, if nothing else, gracious and forgiving. But even if this is too great a thing to ask, I beg you not to hold anything against Bev, who still loves you very much. The breakup of your marriage would be too great a burden for me to bear. With deep affection and regret, Jill. David placed the letter on the kitchen table and gazed out across the harbor. A rusted dragger was making its slow way out to sea. His emotions rose to the surface, his throat constricting, his eyes filling with tears. He had never allowed himself to think of this separation in the full light of its possible consequences— that it might represent the actual loss of his marriage. Even now, he could not bring himself to think of it. Yet there it was, on the page, the prophecy, the warning. It could happen. Perhaps Beverly herself was talking this way. Perhaps that had been the occasion for Jill's letter. He folded the letter back into the envelope and rose heavily from the chair. He ascended the stairs to the attic, allowing his body to collapse, cross-legged to the floor. 
He stared out through the steady drizzle across the dark, turbulent waters to the battered face of Mount Ozard, its summit lost in a low ceiling of cloud. The world was closing in. David's chest heaved as he breathed, and his eyes burned in their sockets. There were things he could do, he knew. He could give this whole thing up as a bad job, go down right now, pack up the car, and head for home. He could pick up the phone and confess his love and his regret to Beverly, breaking through this stultifying stalemate. But something was preventing him. Something undone, or perhaps started but not yet finished. No, he couldn't go back. Not yet. It wasn't time. But never had he more fully comprehended the dangers of this journey and the full burden of his own responsibility in what had happened— His mother had been right. This was not about him and Beverly, not anymore at least. It was now about him. His next haircut brought these thoughts within speaking distance, though he knew he was not yet ready to let them out. Still, when Randy asked him, So, how's it going? There was so much David wanted to say. Okay, was all he could muster at first. David decided to go with something safe, so he talked about his ministry, about his love for the church and its traditions. The conversation took an inward turn only when he shared with Randy his disappointment that so few of his parishioners actually went to church, that so few seemed to share his—his—he couldn't think of the right word—passion, Randy offered. I, I wasn't thinking of, well, of that word, David said— But that's what you're describing, Randy replied. You feel passionate about your work, like I feel passionate about mine. Passion. It had never occurred to him that that's what it was. He had been accused of a lot of things. Stuffiness, conservatism, emotional constipation. Someone had actually said that to him once, but never of passion. It was an utterly new thought. You know what it means, don't you? David asked Randy. It's from the Latin, passio, having to do with suffering, which is why we call Christ's death his passion. God's love was expressed through his suffering. Randy hadn't known that, but thought that it sounded about right. He himself had been in a lot of passionate relationships, he said, that had meant nothing in the end but a lot of suffering. For the moment, he was happy to be uninvolved, But he knew it was only a matter of time. I mean, he continued, unless you really want to live alone, most of us need companionship, don't we? We're just not always prepared to suffer for it. Right, David heard himself saying. That's right. It was an interesting idea, and David found himself returning to it often in the days and weeks that followed. He did feel passionate about his work. He was willing to suffer for it. This was probably the root of much of his frustration with other clergy that so few seemed genuinely committed to their calling, passionately committed to it as he was, though it was still startling to think of himself in this way. It was when he considered the more personal dimensions of passion, the relational dimensions, that he had trouble identifying it in himself. He loved his children, he knew that but he wondered how much suffering he had endured for their sakes. Beverly bore most of the suffering, in the literal sense of having borne them, of course, 
but also in the sense of being closest to their daily needs, to their own daily sufferings. But David always had his ministry to attend to, always had some pressing circumstances that took him away from his family. Had his children been missing out on his own sacrifice of time and attention? Not that parenthood was only about suffering, but it was at least about suffering, if you truly loved your children. He knew he loved Beverly, too, but theirs had always been an easy relationship for him. They rarely fought. They rarely even sparked. So compatible were their natures, so balanced their daily lives. They understood one another instinctively. There was no question of that. But had they suffered for one another? What suffering had Beverly been enduring, he wondered, unknown to him, suffering that eventually found its outlet with Jill? But even more important, how much had he been prepared to suffer for her? Their marriage to him had been all about gain, not loss. He was so well supported by Beverly and by their stable life together that he could not recall ever having really sacrificed anything for her or for the sake of their marriage. This bothered him now. As he pondered these questions, the words to that familiar old hymn returned, starting up all by itself inside his head. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Sorrow and love, he repeated aloud. This seemed close to the heart of some great mystery. Must love necessarily bring sorrow? Are the two inseparable? If one suffers, is it only because one has loved? And if one loves, must one suffer? Jesus suffered. He suffered the loss of everything, not only his life, but his mission too. And why? Because God so loved the world, Scripture said. But in suffering such a loss, he gained the kingdom. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Jesus had said. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. David shook his head. In the end, he had to admit that he really didn't know what he was talking about. This was all such strange new territory for him. It was, for the moment, an interesting idea. But what did it really mean in his life? He didn't have a clue. As the dark days of December closed in upon the coast, they brought alarming evidence that winter here had only just begun. The winds howled through the trees at night, hard rain beating against the windows. Every so often, the lights flickered, 
sometimes dimming to half their strength, a phenomenon called brownouts, David learned, which was often preliminary to the power going out altogether. He learned to keep dry matches and emergency candles at the ready. The dreary emptiness of the house and the ominous shadows of the late afternoon eventually drove David out into the elements. He wrapped himself in his slicker, pulled his boots up over his thick wool socks, cinched the drawstring of his hood tightly around his chin, and ventured out to the rocky headlands. Roiling waves tossed up by an angry sea, carried by a momentum begun hundreds of miles out, rolled in at towering heights, some twenty and thirty feet between trough and crest, dwarfing the lighthouse at Amphitrite Point, hurling themselves into the battered rock with such force that the ground shook beneath David's feet. David leaned into the wind, barely able to see through the narrow slits of his eyes. The drenching spray sawed its way inside his clothing through every seam, every opening, The slicker did not breathe, and sweat ran down David's back. He tried to make himself remember how this felt, rehearsing how he would later recall this moment and then this one, how he might describe it to others back home. But he came to suspect that the task was futile. These were sensations only the body could retain, long after the mind gave up trying. The violent physicality of this place left the mind numb, unable to fathom such brute force. It was the body, reverberating with each earth-shattering blow of a wave, pummeled by the steady force of the mighty wind. It was the body that understood. It was the body that would remember. David's mornings were now taken up with planning the Christmas service. He had had no luck getting a soloist, since all the available musicians had a role in the town's performance of Handel's Messiah. As he explained his plans for decorating the church, the few women who made up the tiny chancel guild readily agreed to help, especially since what he was asking was pretty much what they did each year for Christmas anyway. But he couldn't count on their being present at the service itself, they informed him. All of them had some duty to perform for the Messiah, selling tickets or working the bake table. The possibility of low attendance at the service began to weigh heavily on him, especially as, week after week, he set up for his early Sunday morning communion service at St. Aidan's, to which no one came at all. He would sit at the prayer desk in his robes, gazing out across the harbor, glancing every few minutes at his watch, waiting for a congregation that never materialized. When a half hour had passed, he would rise slowly, return the communion set to its appointed place, pack up his robes in his small suitcase, and head out for the service up into Fino. Still, David pressed on, drawing up a list of well-known carols and having Mimi type them up in booklet form. He found it difficult to get anyone to commit to being readers for the service, so he asked Mimi, who was only too pleased to help him out. She would do all the readings, Ernie would play the carols on the piano, he himself would read from the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and lead in the prayers. David developed a concept for publicity posters which Mimi cheerfully made up on her computer, and he went around both towns tacking them up on bulletin boards at the post office and the co-op, on telephone poles and in store windows. Then, finally, the great day arrived. 
the fourth Sunday of Advent, the Sunday before Christmas. He promoted the evening service of lessons and carols once again at both morning services, expressing his hope that everyone from the two churches would come out to greet the newcomers he hoped would be attracted to the service. At the door, people shook his hand and solemnly wished him well, as one might shake the hand of a sea captain who was about to go down with his ship. At seven o'clock, David moved around the church, lighting the candles he had placed in the windows. He plugged in the strings of Christmas tree lights, and the tiny bulbs flickered, just as he had envisaged it. At 7.15, Mimi arrived, bringing her hand up to her mouth to stifle a small gasp of delight at the sight of the decorated church. It looked so lovely, she said. He walked down the aisle to greet her, the sleeves of his surplice billowing out at his sides. He turned at the end of the aisle to take it in himself. He had to admit, it looked nice. With all now in readiness, he put the tape in the cassette player to set the mood, a recording of the King's College Choir singing Christmas carols ancient and modern. He waited for Ernie to come and take his place at the piano. By 7.25, David was growing concerned. Ernie wasn't there. Neither was a congregation. Still, he smiled reassuringly at Mimi, who had taken her place in the front pew. This is what they called island time, wasn't it, he asked her. She smiled encouragingly up at him. At 7.30, David and Mimi were still the only two in the candlelit church, though people could be heard passing by on the sidewalk outside. But no one was turning in. David didn't know what to do. He grew flustered before his congregation of one, Mimi, all dressed up in festive Christmas colors and seated demurely before him. Finally, ten minutes after the service was to have begun, he walked down to where Mimi was sitting and slumped into the pew beside her, his arms dropping between his knees. They're not coming, are they? he said. She looked down at her hands. She shook her head. They told me this would happen, he said. But I thought I could attract at least a few. I mean, with all this work, a few would have been enough. She looked over at him, her eyes brimming with sympathy. She placed her hand on top of his. It's okay, she said. They like you, you know. But this is the night of the Messiah. It's a tradition. It was just too much for you to compete with. He gazed round at the lovely little church, sparkling with festive light. You can still use all this for Christmas Eve, she said. For a moment, neither of them spoke, sharing this intimate moment of realization, each wringing their own meaning from it. Mimi didn't actually seem too sad. She squeezed his hand. Do you want to go to the Messiah, she said. There's still time. Well, why not, he thought. It had something to do with joining them if he couldn't beat them. He nodded his consent to Mimi, rising wearily to his feet. He climbed out of his robes while she extinguished the candles and unplugged the lights. She placed her hand through the crook of his arm as they left the church and headed up the street for the high school. Parked cars lined the streets on both sides. They purchased their tickets, he paid for hers, from Grace, who, seated at a card table inside the door, winked at the couple as if she were a favorite aunt. They squeezed through the crowded room to take their place, standing against the back wall along with the other latecomers. David recognized half his parish, as well as half the town. 
He realized he didn't really care if he was seen by them here, and evidently, neither did Mimi. The musicians began taking their places on the risers. He pressed his back into the cold-painted cinder-block wall and cursed himself. What a fool he'd been. What arrogant pride to set himself up in competition with this. Just who did he think he was? A line from that old familiar hymn came back to him, and poor contempt on all my pride, indeed. He closed his eyes and clenched his fists and felt, with surprise, Mimi's small hand still locked in his arm. He glanced down at her in the dark. She was looking out on the room, radiant, pleased with herself. The orchestra, smartly turned out in black pants or skirts and white shirts or blouses, took a few minutes to tune, sounding almost like the real thing. It seemed to be made up of anyone who could play an instrument, no matter what it was, so long as it could be adapted to the simplified musical score. There were high school students, their jaws working furiously on huge wads of gum, for whom this was likely a course requirement. There were several long-haired, middle-aged, folky types on mandolins and guitars. There were seniors, their clarinets and violas dusted off and sparkling under the stage lights, There were children with violins and flutes peering out into the audience to catch a glimpse of mum or dad. The glow of anticipation was evident, luminous on the scrubbed faces of this unlikely assemblage of musicians. The whole scene was quite remarkable and helped for a moment to lift David's flagging spirits. He knew he would be feeling badly for days, resigning himself to the humiliation brought on by his own stupidity, But for the next hour or so, perhaps he could pass something of his burden over to these people, to this community that was becoming his home away from home. Perhaps here in the dark for this brief time, they could now minister to him. Gazing upon the scene unfolding before him, the nervous musicians fidgeting beneath the rented theatrical lights, straightening their music and adjusting their positions on the molded plastic stacking chairs— He did not notice her at first. It was not until the lights had dimmed and Mr. Abernathy, the band teacher, and the four paid soloists strode onto center stage. It was not until all was in readiness and the room fell silent and Mr. A raised his baton. Then, out of nowhere, there she was, seated at the end of the cello section, closest to the audience. She was the picture of composed refinement her elegant frame leaning forward, taut with intelligent alertness, her long black skirt flowing to the floor, her arms in a crisp white blouse poised in playing position. Her dark hair was tied back by a velvet ribbon, revealing in silhouette the profile of a princess, no, of an angel. David was not breathing when the string section launched into its spirited introductory passage, their errant squeaks and squawks failing to diminish the dignified entrance of the tenor soloist. Mimi glanced up at her minister, triumph fairly radiating from her face. The tenor stood, a broad, full-faced man, to prophesy the coming of the Lord. The printed program said he was a carpenter by trade, a soloist, in Nanaimo's First Presbyterian Church, who had once sung with the University of Victoria Chorus. 
He sang through a wide, unrepressed smile, clearly pleased with his charge and responsibility, announcing to the people, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill made low, but even more so, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. His jowls verily shook with the good news. His message thus delivered, the tenor sat down, pleased with himself indeed, and the chorus carried the hopeful theme forward, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, they sang, almost as one. But for David, God's glory was already being revealed before him, and she was stealing his heart away, moment by moment. He couldn't stop looking at the Messiah's cellist. She was a vision of such exquisite loveliness, there in the soft edge of the spotlight. Earnest, focused, intent on the task at hand, she embodied everything he himself endeavored but failed to be. He hadn't even known he had been searching, but suddenly, in this unexpected place, here she was, an angel of mercy, his angel. The alto now rose to join the chorus. A fierce, dark-haired beauty, a swimming coach in her day-to-day life, the program said. Her face wore an expression so intense that her eyes were almost crossed, a look so severe as to make even the timid swimmers cast themselves into the deep end. When she bid the messenger of Zion to get thee up into the high mountain, one had no illusions that he would be up and gone forthwith. The alto sat down, breathing hard, passing the heavy mantle to the chorus, who picked up the pace to announce that, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Something of the alto's determination was caught by the choristers, who performed their duty as if the fulfillment of this magnificent prophecy rested upon their shoulders alone, indeed, as if it hung on their every word. The soprano rose now to entreat the daughters of Jerusalem to rejoice at the coming of their king. She seemed too small for the job, fair-haired and fair-skinned, a part-time music teacher and a mother of twins, barely into her thirties. Yet with a serene confidence quite beyond her years, her voice swept up suddenly and unexpectedly to fill the room with joyful tidings. And David felt it in his own heart, this good news, this wonderful possibility of new beginnings— The cellist could feel it too, he was certain, though she remained professionally restrained, intent only on the work before her, swaying gently, almost imperceptibly, with the rise and fall of the musical cadences. David found himself outside of time, barely contained by the confines of the hot, crowded room, oblivious to the discomfort of standing, his back pressed against the hard, cold wall, oblivious to Mimi as her hand slipped down his arm to take hold of his. His rapt attention was undivided, caught up in the wondrous spectacle of sight and sound unfolding before him, and of the radiant apparition of this most heavenly creature seated, bent slightly forward, at the head of the cello section, a beatific vision, if ever there was one. The musical tone darkened as the alto stepped forward again, this time to tell how the Messiah was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief— She seemed genuinely upset, as if reporting something she herself had witnessed, her face folding into a nasty sneer as she recalled for the room how, 
He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. She became so indignant, recounting how he hid not his face from shame and spitting, that spit sprayed forth from her own mouth, causing people in the first rows to pull out hankies and wipe their faces. The bass soloist had been silent far too long, waiting his turn. His tall frame sprawled awkwardly in the hard chair, his bearded face looking down to the floor in front of him as if he too were upset, perhaps even suicidal. He taught classical studies at a community college up in Campbell River, something that in itself could be a cause for despondency. Homer not being a name closely associated with plumbing or with communication technology. But now, at last, the bass soloist stood, nostrils flaring, ready to expose the conundrum of the human condition. Why do the nations so furiously rage together, he demanded of the darkened room. Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The people sat bolt upright as the string section sawed away to underscore the complaint of the soloist, his eyes aglow with passion, his body taut and poised right at the edge of the stage. Why, he was demanding, why do the nation so furiously rage together? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The people gathered here didn't seem to have an answer for him, but their upturned faces likely constituted more riveted attention than he ever received in his classroom posing these same questions. Then, suddenly, the orchestra and chorus were surging together toward the evening's finale, the Hallelujah Chorus. The room rose to its feet in elated recognition. The brass players now had their moment in the spotlight, some actually managing to hit the correct notes. The chorus held nothing back, the young and the old swaying together. The strings, inspired surely by their angelic cellist, cast aside all abandon for the rising crescendo of God's praise, their bows lifting and falling with unbridled passion, if not always with precision. At the final hallelujah, the singers now leaning forward precipitously on the risers, the tympanist pounding away, the string players throwing their tussled hair out of their faces, the room roared its approval, breaking into wild applause and raucous shouts of bravo and encore. The din in the room was deafening, an orgasm of emotional release. David found himself one with the moment, clapping wildly, calling out with the mob, Bravo! Bravo! The fevered pitch rose higher still as the four soloists each stepped forward to take a bow, especially the bass, as he raised his head high and peered triumphantly down his nose at them. Mr. A acknowledged the orchestra and chorus with a sweep of his hand, the orchestra rising to receive the ovation, smiling openly, basking in the triumphal moment. David's angel herself, blushing with unrestrained pleasure. Magnificent, David exclaimed to Mimi as they flowed with the crowd out into the cool night. Simply magnificent. I'm so glad you liked it, she said, looking up at him tenderly, sliding her arm through his. Such, such passion, he said, trying out his new word. I'm amazed. And I've heard Handel's Messiah before, I can tell you, but never like this. David smiled. Mimi beamed. And you must tell me, David said, who was that angelic cellist? Mimi looked up at him, mildly alarmed. What's a cellist, she asked, smiling crookedly. David looked down 
and suddenly woke from his dream. He felt her arm locked in his. He saw her upturned face searching his eyes anxiously now. He removed her hand from his arm and held it. Oh, dear, he said. Have I done something wrong? Have I been giving you the wrong impression? She retrieved her hand and looked away. When she looked up at him again, there were tears in her eyes. I'm sorry, she said. I've just made a fool of myself, haven't I? No, no, he tried to reassure her. Not at all. I'm the one who's been a fool. You have been perfectly, well, you have been very kind. She smiled, but it was a smile of resigned recognition. She had stood in these shoes before. She had heard these words, or words very much like them. Well, good night, David, she said. I'm glad you're all right with the way things turned out. She rose up on her toes and kissed him on the cheek. Good night, Mimi, he said. And he watched her disappear into the dispersing crowd. We were born, born to be wise. We can climb so high. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. In the next episode, David suffers his first Christmas far from home and from everything he holds dear and familiar. Never has he felt so alone. But also, never has he been closer to that holy family who celebrated their first Christmas in a stable. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. The Mystic Cave.